Good evening. It's great to be here. Uh, real pleasure to visit the UB campus. I've always wanted to meet Dean Smith. Doesn't everyone do that with her? Um, so it's, it's been a pleasure. We had, I had time at the reception beforehand um, to uh, uh, talk to uh, Dean Smith, some students, some faculty, uh, and um, our midshipmen here. Um, I like visiting college campuses. It's always a pleasure to get back uh, in front of students and faculty. I'm going to be talking about the economy today. And if, um, uh, if you're like I suspect, uh, no doubt you get most of your information um, about the economy um, from your favorite news media. And that might be, a, you know, if you're an older person, maybe a, a newspaper or a TV channel. But nowadays, a lot of people get their news on the internet and uh, whatever. Um, <clears throat> like you um, I, I, and, and a lot of us, it's been uh, a challenge lately. Um, I almost dread picking up the newspaper these days uh, because what you see in it are headlines about natural disasters uh, and uh, new fighting breaking out overseas. So it's, it's sort of that way when the subject's the economy as well. Uh, lately, we've gotten a lot of news about things like um, surging oil prices or a broken federal budget deficit. Uh, things that, that pose risks for the economy going forward. And that's all true. Um, I don't want to minimize those risks. Those are all valid risks for the economy. But you shouldn't lose sight of uh, the economy that is firmly in recovery mode, the fact that the economy is recovering, uh, and that the fundamentals for growth, for economic growth in our country, are very, very strong. And that's what I'll be talking about here today. So before... Um, I take a look at the economic, uh, the outlook for economic growth going forward in a little more detail. Um, I'd like to emphasize, as I always do, that these remarks are my own views and not necessarily those of any of my colleagues in the Federal Open Market Committee. So let me talk by start by setting the stage uh, for this. Um, in 2008 and in the first half of 2009, uh, we experienced the worst recession since the Great Depression. Beginning in July of 2009, um, so a little, you know, almost two years ago, uh, we saw growth turn positive again. The economy began expanding after contracting for a year and a half. Real gross domestic product is our best measure of overall economic activity. We call it GDP for short. And it increased at a, a fairly modest 2.9% annual rate over the next six quarters following July 2009. Now, a lot of observers, a lot of economists, a lot of analysts have been disappointed with that modest uh, growth because it's barely above the long-run trend rate of growth in the economy. And you get that trend rate of growth by taking population growth, or growth, more specifically, growth in the working age population, and adding to it the growth in productivity, the, the amount of uh, economic activity per person, in essence. <clears throat> But at least GDP has recovered in real terms. Um, and its level, the, the actual amount of economic activity uh, in our country, is higher than it was at the previous peak before the recession. So that's good news. Other important indicators, though, have not uh, recovered. The number of, of people employed on uh, outside, farm pay, outside farm, so we call this payroll employment, uh, has risen by 1.4 million persons uh, in the last 15 months, uh, since July, since the beginning of, of 2009. 
But that increase of uh, about one and a half million is dwarfed by the 8.7 million jobs uh, that were lost in the previous two years before the beginning of 2009. So we've got a, a long way of, to go, I think it's fair to say, uh, before we fully recovered from what people are calling the Great Recession uh, that we've just been through. So a, na a natural question to ask is whether growth could be or will be stronger. After all, there have been other times in our past when we've had recessions, and we've had uh, experiences of growth much more rapid coming out of a recession uh, than in this current recovery. So I'm going to highlight two particular episodes. Um, one was the recession of 1981 and 1982, um, and the other was the recession of 1974-75. I understand for an audience like this that for, for many of you that's ancient history. Um, it's a long, long time ago. Back in the 1970s, we were experiencing high inflation. It was the first of the oil shocks that came along, and we had a very sharp recession in 74. Um, and then in 1981-82, uh, the Federal Reserve essentially had to engineer a recession deliberately to reduce inflation. Uh, and that was the famous Volcker disinflation uh, that led to the, the, the period of, of um, lower and more stable inflation that we've enjoyed since then. In those two recessions, <coughs> in the first six quarters after the recession ended, so in the recovery period, like the, the period we've just been through, real GDP growth averaged a 6.3% annual rate. 6.3 versus 2.9, which is what we've seen um, in this recovery. So we're less than half of the, the rate of recovery of, uh, uh, that we experienced then. Now accompanying that, that output growth back then, job growth was four and a half million persons uh, on average in those two re recoveries. This is a striking contrast. And so we're experiencing a recovery from this recession that's notably more sluggish uh, than we've experienced uh, in recessions that are of similar size we, that we've experienced in the past. So there's two factors that, in a proximal sense, there's two factors that really account for this. If you're looking for why this is and you're just piecing out the numbers, in arithmetic terms, there's really two factors. The most obvious is the, con the collapse of housing construction. We built too many houses in the boom, the housing boom that went from 1995 through 2005. We built way too many houses in that time period. Many of those houses are now vacant, and those houses are pretty good substitutes for building your own brand new house. So there isn't that much need to build new houses these days. And as a consequence, residential construction, residential investment, um, that's you know, the expenditures we make on constructing new homes, has fallen by 57%, nearly 60%, from the end of the housing boom to the end of the recession. And it's fallen further in the recovery. In contrast, in those two recessions in the 70s and 80s that I talked about, um, housing uh, investment increased an average of 40%, an incredible rapid snapback in housing construction. And housing construction fell by about the same magnitude in those recessions. So housing is sort of the obvious factor dampening uh, this recovery. But it only accounts for 2.5% of the economy right now, just 2.4%. A much larger factor in the economy is what consumers spend. Consumer spending is about 70% of uh, GDP right now. In the first five quarters of this recovery, 
consumer expenditures increased at an annual rate of just below 2%. In contrast, in those two recessions I told you about, um, household spending grew by an average of 6.5%. So 6.5% back then, 2% back right about now. So those two factors, the sluggishness of housing and the sluggishness of consumer spending, are, are, are really the, the, the arithmetic reasons, sort of the accounting reasons for why growth is slow now. So a, a key to the outlook for growth, what growth is going to do going forward, is our economy going to expand, are jobs going to expand much? A key to that is consumer behavior. And because it's over two-thirds of the economy, it's really hard to imagine an, econ an economy that's expanding very robustly uh, and is offering a lot of new opportunities for our people without a substantial increase in consumer spending. So it's, it's easy to understand why consumer spending has been so sluggish since, since the beginning of the recovery. A large number of households experienced unemployment during this recession. Um, and many more were uncertain about their job security. As they see other people losing their jobs, they get worried about their own jobs. Wage growth fell. The rate at which wages increased fell during the recession. Housing prices declined, in many cases unexpectedly, and that significantly reduced the equity, the housing equity in consumers' balance sheets. The, the difference between the value of their house and the amount they owe on their mortgage fell, and in many cases became negative for some households. Stock prices fell sharply as well. That also uh, had a negative effect on consumer wealth. So it shouldn't be too surprising that consumers responded to this adversity by deferring non-essential spending, things for like large consumer goods, autos, electronic goods, and the like, and using their resources to rebuild their balance sheet, e either by paying down debt, which is sort of a form of savings, or saving outright and investing it and holding it in liquid assets to, to be prepared for a possible rainy day coming their way. And that's reflected in statistics like personal saving, which was slightly below 2% of income at the, in mid-2007, just before the recession began, just below 2% of people's income was being saved on average. And it's, but it's, it, it rose to slightly above 6% of income at the end of the recession. And it's been up near 6% ever since. So consumers much more cautious, spending a smaller fraction of their income, using what's left over to build up their balance sheet, either by repaying debt, reducing their credit card balances, um, or building up liquid assets. So if you look at consumer situation on the whole in the US, a lot of improvements have, have occurred in the fundamentals underlying consumer spending. So new claims for unemployment insurance uh, have trended down. So we have fewer people entering the roles of, of the unemployed right now. The unemployment rate has fallen 1.3 percentage rate points from its peak. And as a result, those who are employed are probably having more re reason to be a little more confident now that they're not going to lose their job. And unemployment isn't increasing as much. The flow in unemployment is, is slower. So there's less risk for the people who are employed that they're going to lose their job involuntarily. Employment has picked up. Uh, growth in the last two months, in fact, has been better than 200,000 jobs a month. And that contrasts with less than 100,000 jobs a month about a year ago. The stock market has more than doubled from its recession low point. Um, the net worth of households 
um, as a result of that and other things that have gone on, the net worth of households, their assets minus their liabilities, has increased by $8 trillion, a huge increase in wealth. Not back to where it was um, just before the recession, uh, but a substantial increase. And as those fundamentals have improved, we've seen a pickup in consumer spending. Retail sales, um, sales of goods uh, to consumers, rose at 5.2% in the first year of the recovery, and in the next eight months after that, increased at a 9.9% annualized rate. So a substantial pickup in the pace at which consumers are increasing their spending uh, has occurred um, in the last year or so. So I'd stress that this higher pace of consumer spending is solidly grounded in improving fundamentals. So I expect this growth to persist. Um, I expect consumers to continue to see improvements in job markets, in their income, uh, and in their wealth. Maybe from a low level compared to from before the recession, uh, but improvement nonetheless. Um, moreover, households have deferred a lot of non-essential spending. And there's a, a stock of pent-up demand for goods and services. And as they gain confidence, they're likely to unleash that pent-up demand to some extent, draw down on that stock of uh, pent-up demand and boost spending. So I, can, I see consumer spending as an important part of the recovery, but there are other areas of strength in our economy as well, and I'll mention two of them. First, exports of goods and services. These have risen 18% since the end of the recession, and that adds two per, that's added 2% to GDP growth, and GDP remember, is income. So that's added to American income growth by 2%. Now, it's true, the most recent report, if you're a, you know, a, a maven and following these economic statistics, you may recall a couple of days ago that the exports fell in February, uh, sort of unexpected. Um, but they rem exports remain, even at the, the fall, with the slight fall in February, they remain well ahead of the fourth quarter pace. So we're going to get growth in the first quarter in exports. Um, no two ways about it. Moreover, a, a key fundamental factor underlying the demand for exports from our country is the rate at which foreign countries are growing, uh, the rate of growth abroad, economic growth abroad. And here, the prospects are really good, really quite excellent. Um, so growth in the highly industrialized economies um, has been similar to our growth. Places like Europe and Japan, they're growing at about the pace we are. But many less developed countries are growing very, very rapidly. Especially notable is the two most populous countries. China's GDP is reported to have grown at 9.7% last year, and India's GDP is reported to have grown at 8.3%. This growth is solidly based, because these countries are taking a large labor force that does not have modern industrialized country capital to use, and they're bringing in modern industrialized capital, plant, equipment, machines, computers, and the like, and they're equipping their labor force with it. So they're advancing from uh, low productivity technologies, leapfrogging all the way to the frontier of technologies that Western economies use. Um, and so they've got just tremendous growth potential uh, going forward. So a good example, Japan's growth miracle was, was fueled much the same way after World War II, uh, driven by uh, bringing in Western technology and not having to go through the whole inventive process that the Western economies had to uh, go through to get the, that, those technological advances. Um, and um, I think the current crop of rapidly growing economies can also look forward to, I think, a, a good couple of decades of growth. 
until they get to the point where as much of their workforce is deployed using modern technology as ours is, uh, until they get there, they're going to be able to grow much more rapidly than our, us. Of course, when they get there, they're going to have an economy on the frontier of technology, just like Japan, just like Japan the US, and Europe. And at that point, they're going to be in the same boat we are. To get growth, they're going to have to innovate, develop new technologies, and apply them a much more gradual process, a much slower process, something that in Western economies proceeds at a, a pace of about 1.5% per year on average, uh, per capita. So, but until they get there, until they can deploy capital to, satis to, to hook up with all their, their workers, they're going to grow tremendously rapidly. As they grow, they will buy more of our products. Consumers who join their middle class are going to buy goods that they formerly thought are luxury goods, from pharmaceuticals to motion pictures and the like. The demand for our agricultural products will rise. Most importantly, as I suggested by talking about capital stock, newly industrialized uh, countries are going to want to acquire more capital goods uh, in order to allow their workers to move into more productive activities. For all those reasons, I think export demand is likely to contribute very strongly to U.S. growth uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and we're going to be producing goods and services the world wants to buy, especially in the most rapidly growing parts of the world. So the second, fact, second factor besides consumer growth I'll cite is that's going to make a significant contribution to growth, especially this year, is investment in equipment and software. This has grown 22% uh, since the end of the recession. And it looks like, I won't belabor this point, um, but it looks like there are a lot of opportunities out there to streamline business processes and to reduce costs by taking on board new technologies and in implementing them, essentially productivity enhancing investments. And those opportunities appear to be widespread, a whole array of industries. This isn't just about Silicon Valley. This isn't just about computers. It's a whole range of industries that if you look under the covers, you'll find there's some technological progress going on that motivates investment spending. So all told, I think the economy has a lot to go for, going for it. But I will grant that there are substantial challenges ahead, and these do, should not be ignored. Housing activity remains depressed, and I think it's going to remain depressed for quite some time. So we have a large inventory, as I said, of vacant homes, and there's this ongoing foreclosure wave. We have a situation where we have a lot of people that are a mismatch for the house they're in. Uh, they're in a house they either can't afford um, or uh, otherwise, are in, you know, just, it's just not for them. And so it's, it's a process of sorting out what houses people should be in. Should they be owners? Should they be renters? Should they be in an apartment? Should they be in a house? Um, if if um, houses shouldn't be owned, Who's going to own them and rent them out to somebody else? That's a tr there's a tremendous amount of sorting going on, and the foreclosure wave is part of it, but a lot of buying and selling is part of it as well. In the meantime, as I said, we have a huge overhang of vacant homes, more homes than we need, and so new home construction is not going to be needed in substantial volume uh, for some time. Um, I think uh, home prices are likely to remain under pressure for a while, and the best case I see is for residential construction uh, to advance at only a slow and uneven pace. And I think what's more likely is residential construction to be relatively flat. A single family starts, for example, at maybe four or 500,000 
uh, units per year for a couple of years. Another challenge our economy faces is from the run-up in energy prices and commodity prices more broadly, but I'll focus on energy prices. The world price of crude oil has risen more than 60% since last summer. The economy is facing large increases in the prices of gasoline and other petroleum products. Any of you buy gas and put in cars have no doubt noticed this lately. Consumer spending growth is likely to be somewhat restrained for a while as households adjust to these new higher prices. Now, I'd be very concerned if I expected these price increases to continue at about the same rate they're, they're going right now. At this juncture, though, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And the evidence I'd point to is that the, the market for future oil, futures market for oil, uh, where you can buy uh, the right to have delivered to you oil in 12 months or 24 months or the like, those futures markets have a price curve that that's trails steadily downward. So the futures market are telling us that financial market participants as a whole uh, believe that energy prices are going to be flat or declining from here. If the markets are right, and that's a big if, and if we at the Federal Reserve do our job, I'll just say that's an if, um, the effect of energy prices on consumer spending should only be temporary, just transitory. And after this adjustment, uh, consumer spending should pick up again. But as I said, that's contingent. So a longer run challenge for us as a country is fiscal policy. And you've undoubtedly been thinking about this with all the stories over the weekend about uh, budget negotiations and a last minute deal to prevent the shutdown of the U.S. government. The trajectory that federal government spending and revenue uh, is, is on is a diverging pair of paths. Um, it leaves us with a budget, it's left us recently with a budget deficit that was above 10% of GDP last year. That is an astronomically high number, usually closer to one or two. Um, the amount of government borrowing is therefore rising, and it's rising more rapidly than GDP, more rapidly than our incomes are going up. The amount of debt outstanding owed by the federal government is going up more rapidly than our total economy's income is going up. Uh, that cannot go on forever. That will not happen. It just will not happen. So when you see those charts in the newspaper of the, some projections of what current legislation implies about the path of government spending and uh, government revenues, those are, those are just false. They can't go on forever like that. Something else different is going to happen. The real question is whether our elected officials make timely adjustments ahead of time um, to put us on a, a sustainable path for spending and taxes, or whether they let a crisis force their hands and have to make hasty decisions uh, in the heat of um, a financial market um, uh, turmoil. Unless credible changes are made to align taxes and spending, um, the o there's going to be an overhang of uncertainty about how it's going to be done, about which programs will be cut, about which taxes will be adjusted, and that's going to make it more difficult for households and firms to make plans going forward, and that's going to impede growth going forward. So the sooner we figure it out, the sooner as a country we come to terms with our budget problems, um, the, the better growth will be and um, the more rapidly our country will become uh, more wealthy. 
So despite all these challenges, most forecasters are predicting that overall economic activity, GDP, I've been using that term, will grow at a pace that's well above uh, trend for the next few years. It's been at about trend, maybe a little below. Uh, they're predicting it'll be at a growth rate well above trend for the next few years. And I'd sign on to that, that forecast. Um, under that forecast, unemployment would uh, continue to decline and income growth would pick up and gradually improve for consumers. This improvement in economic activity, I think, is going to translate into continued strength for the Maryland economy. Uh, as a result of a, a really diverse private sector that you have here, uh, strong education and health uh, sectors, very hefty federal spending in this state, uh, Maryland economy has fared better than the national economy during uh, this recent recession. And this assessment includes Maryland's labor markets, where the unemployment rate, though it's still elevated at 7.1%, is well below the national average. And payroll employment has grown by 1.8% over the last 12 months. The same is true of the Baltimore metropolitan area, where hiring has also increased of late. As a result of improving labor market conditions, wage and salary growth has rebounded, and that's helped support consumer spending in the Baltimore and Maryland areas. For example, in 2010, new car sales in Maryland increased for the first time since prior to the recession. Over the next several years, I expect the state's economy to benefit uh, from the base realignments at the Aberdeen Proving Ground and Fort Meade. Um, and that, those are going to bring in new residents uh, and demand for a, a host of ancillary um, uh, services. The presence of a strong array of research institutions in this area, particularly in the life sciences, should also contribute to the economic vitality of this state. Maryland's home to more than 400 life sciences businesses. And that's one of the largest life sciences clusters uh, anywhere in the nation. And that's demonstrated, that cluster has demonstrated the capacity of a world-class uh, scientific research area uh, to generate the type of innovations that lead to startup firms and job growth. Abundant evidence suggests that that kind of innovation is the foundation, the true and only foundation for long-run economic growth. So one reason the consensus of forecasters is so positive about the economy is that they believe that the, the inflation environment is going to remain benign. Over the last 12 months, ending in February, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, this is our best index of inflation. It measures household spending baskets the most accurate way we know how. Um, that price index, that measure of inflation, has been 1.6% over the last 12 months, ending in February. In the absence of further energy price increases, if, if energy price increases flatten out the way the futures curves suggest they will, most forecasters don't foresee a significant acceleration in prices this year from that 1.6% rate. But we should not take this outcome for granted. Commodity price increases have squeezed profit margins at a, an array of firms in our country. And we're increasingly hearing from businesses um, in our district, the, the Fifth Federal Reserve District, um, that uh, firms are looking for an opportunity to pass on those price increases to their customers uh, and, uh, and, and onward into affecting consumer prices more broadly. If firms see robust demand, they're going to be increasingly tempted to do that, to pass on those input price increases, and that would lead to an increase in inflation. 
increases like that, passing on uh, cost increases, can be common at this stage in the business cycle. Now, so far, businesses have absorbed a lot of input price increases, and they presumably believe that their competitors would not follow suit. And that suggests that they believe that overall inflation is going to remain fairly low, and that the increase in their prices is really an increase in the relative price of their goods relative to, to other goods. So that uh, their product is going to be more expensive than the array of other products for sale in the market. Um, and so the, it's not, the, the cost increase isn't part of a broader inflationary trend. Our responsibility at the Federal Open Market Committee is to validate those expectations by conducting monetary policy in such a way uh, that inflation does not accelerate. It's not always an easy task. Easier said than done might be used to describe that task. At this point, in the last business cycle, this same point in the last business cycle, that is to say a year or two into the recovery, uh, the economy began to grow more rapidly. This occurred at the end of 2003, and energy prices started to, to spurt. They started to move ahead. But unemployment, like today, unemployment had not yet begun to fall. And the core inflation measure, this is core inflation is the term we use for inflation where you, you take the inflation index and you strip out energy and food prices. Uh, it's, a, uh, um, it's useful for statistical forecasting purposes. Um, so core energy, core inflation measures uh, were still at about 1.5% then, like overall inflation is now. So we had a position in 2003 where, like today, Growth hadn't reduced unemployment that much. In fact, unemployment was still going up a little bit. Energy prices were rising, and we were wondering whether inflation would increase. Many forecasters back then expected inflation to fall because non-energy prices weren't accelerating yet. And moreover, uh, they were looking at an unemployment rate that was still at elevated, and they thought un high unemployment would keep inflation down. So the FOMC kept interest rates very low uh, well into 2004. Instead of falling, overall inflation soon rose to 3%. And it stayed there on average for four years, from the beginning of 2004 through the end of 2007. Core inflation, stripping out food and energy, averaged two and a quarter percent over that horizon. And I think the widespread understanding at the time, and I think this is consistent with what a lot of FOMC officials have said, was that what we were aiming for was an inflation, of, an inflation rate of more like 2%. So we got 3% on average for four years when we wanted 2%. Now, with hindsight, I think it's fair to say that policymakers overestimated the extent to which high unemployment would keep inflation from accelerating. And as a result of that expectation, uh, they waited too long to begin removing monetary policy stimulus by increasing interest rates. Now, four years of 3% inflation might not be the worst of all possible outcomes. We had much worse outcomes in the 1970s, the period I referred to earlier. Back in the 70s, we had inflation that fluctuated between 2 and 3% and 12%, 13%. And it, it moved up, it moved down, it moved up, it moved down. It was a roller coaster ride. It made it very difficult for people to plan, uh, for people to save, for people to borrow and lend, because you didn't know what the value of the dollars you'd be repaying were going to be. So at 3% compared to the 1970s is, is um, not that bad at all. 
but I don't consider it a success. We were aiming for 2%, I think, and we should have aimed for 2%. And I hope we do better this time around in this business cycle. In particular, I think we need to heed the lesson of the last recovery, that inflation is capable of rising, even if the level of economic activity and the level of unemployment in particular has not returned to the pre-recession trend it was on. In conclusion, let me just say one thing. We've come through an extraordinary period in our nation's history. And despite all the challenges, I believe there are good reasons to hold an affirmative view of the future for the United States economy, as long as policymakers can follow coherent, sustainable, long-run policy plans. And I look forward to my colleague, working with my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee um, as we meet the unique challenges uh, in the realm of monetary policy uh, this year and next. I thank you very much for your attention to my remarks, and thank you for coming out here. It's been a pleasure, and I'd love to take questions if you could, if you have any. Thank you very much. Uh, to the audience, there's microphones on either side of the stage, so if you want to approach the microphone and ask questions, that'd be great. You could... Go ahead. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you for your remarks. I found they were great. This may be more towards your, the economist in you and less in your official position with the Fed, but some of the challenges that I also see ahead deal with state and local revenues, government revenues, where their four primary sources are the federal government, income tax collection, sales taxes, and property taxes, all of which look like they're going to be diminishing for the next many, many years, and especially if job growth doesn't occur, it will only exacerbate that. How does this play into the Fed's policy or your thinking going forward, and, and especially at the policy level? Sure. Well, like the federal government, our state and local governments are, are facing challenges that can be divided into two categories. One, essentially a cyclical problem, and the other, a long-run structural problem. The cyclical problem occurs in every downturn. Uh, when you go into a recession, tax revenues fall. Um, this happens somewhat slow, more slowly with state and local governments, um, but tax revenues fall off. And in addition, you have some expenditure increases um, through social programs uh, that hit state and local governments as well. Um, this uh, process is played out um, in uh, ways that are just have been excruciating for many state and local governments. Uh, it's required um, a lot of sacrifices, um, a lot of very steep uh, and aggressive cuts in spending um, and, and at many in many governments. Um, but then overlaid the top of that, it's a situation that a lot of governments are getting through and there's a light at the, at the end of the tunnel, if not many governments coming out of that tunnel. On top of that, though, there's a longer-run trend that they have to face, and that there's a very large overhang of um, pension and health care liabilities for retirees, um, often you know, firefighters, teachers, and the like, uh, that state and local governments are uh, obligated uh, to pay or to, to alter. And um, you know, it's not clear that, the, that for many, many of those localities, it's not clear they're on a sustainable path. Um, and that's a situation that, like the federal overhang with Social Security and Medicare, uh, is going to have to be reconciled one way or another 
um, to be sustainable. It's a more acute problem at the state and local level because um, many of them don't have um, the options available to the federal government by way of debt issue. Um, so they have to balance their budgets, many of them, on an ongoing basis except for certain capital expenditures. Um, and so there's, there's going to be um, not a lot of job openings at state and local governments, um, you know, except for the usual turnover. There's not going to be net job growth in that sector of a, a, a large magnitude going forward. Um, and it's going to be a, a, a bit of a, it's not going to contribute much to growth, let's put it that way. Good question. Did you have a question? Oh, there's a question over there. Um, my question is in relation to risk. We talked about the debt level of the nation. Uh, my question is in relation to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Mm -hmm. um, the balance sheet's increased immensely over the last couple of years. And what's been added for the most part seemingly is subprime mortgage bonds, souring commercial real estate debt, as well as collateralized debt obligations, which are pretty much worth a fraction of what their original worth was. How is that, um, how can that risk be, I guess, limited going forward if there is another you know, financial collapse, how will the Fed be able to step in and help out again when they already have that much risk associated with their balance sheet? Um, so that's a good question. So um, let, me, um, let me sort of talk about our balance sheet. Um, so let's start on the liability side. Um, our liabilities consist of the paper currency that says Federal Reserve note on it that you all hand take around. It's about 900 billion, a little more than 900 billion right now. And then there's another uh, category of liability. We're essentially bank accounts that banks have with us. So banks, all the banks in the country, almost all of them, have accounts with us and they use that to pay each other. Uh, so if you know Citibank wants to pay Bank of America, um, they use the money in our accounts to transfer those funds. Um, th that number, uh, the, the total amount of reserve account balances used to be about 30 billion and now it's uh, well over a trillion dollars. Um, we've increased that supply of money by buying assets. So let me talk about the assets we've bought. Um, so generally, in normal times, before this crisis, our assets consisted virtually entirely of US Treasury securities. Uh, so there's no credit risk associated with those. Um, there is a risk associated with those if interest rates go up. Um, if interest rates go up, the price of a bond goes down, goes in the opposite direction. Those of you who've taken finance in the audience may uh, recall this. Um, so it's a, it's a capital loss you suffer. The value of a bond goes down. If, if market interest rates go up, but the, the bond interest rate is, stays put, um, you're going to pay less for that bond. Um, so that exposes the Federal Reserve, and always has, um, to a, a risk of um, capital losses. Um, now, in, in normal times, that hasn't been of any consequence um, to the Federal Reserve, um, but it's, it's something that has the potential to affect our balance sheets now. Now, in addition, we've bought um, other assets. Beginning in late 2008, we bought uh, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, but the mortgage-backed securities we bought under that program, and that we, we bought about a trillion of them, um, was um, issued, were issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, so they were um, essentially backed by the government because at the time, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were, they were the, these big housing GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, and they had been taken into receivership at that point by the U.S. Treasury. And the U.S. Treasury has committed 
to provide funds to keep them solvent as long as they're alive. Now, there are proposals on the table to wind them down, but we essentially had the equivalent of a U.S. Treasury. Now, there are a couple of other assets that we own. Um, in March of 2008, um, we uh, assisted uh, Bear Stearns, which failed and was taken over by J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, as part of that, we took on our balance sheet, in essence, um, about $30 billion of a, a, a sort of a collection of assets. And it included some things with credit risk, that is to say, you know, the risk that the borrower would default. In addition, in connection with AIG, the resolution of AIG, we also took similar assets on our balance sheet. And there's another minor program or two where there's a little bit of credit risk. This is very unusual for the Federal Reserve, a central bank, to take credit risk onto its balance sheet. We publish our balance sheet every week on Thursday afternoon. It was just published a couple of hours ago. It's 24 hours lagged. We publish on Thursday our Wednesday balance sheet. We are transparent. We are the country central bank. We are obligated to tell you what we hold, how much of it we hold, and we should. And so you can find out all you want to know on the web about those securities, and we mark those to market. Every quarter, we update those marks. Um, so far, um, those securities associated with AIG and um, Bear Stearns uh, have, have not had uh, material effect, haven't been material losses for us on those. So um, our balance sheet is in good shape right now. Um, and I think we're well positioned to do what we need to do with monetary policy. Now, we've been increasing the amount of money in the economy. Um, you may have heard about QE2, quantitative easing. Um, that's been um, a, a program to add additional monetary stimulus in the last few months. Um, when we get done with that, there'll be decisions ahead that the FOMC will face about whether to um, continue or whether to, to stand pat or whether the economy needs for us to start withdrawing monetary stimulus. Withdrawing monetary stimulus, so-called exit strategy, uh, is a ch another challenge we face going forward. Um, and um, uh, it, there's, it, there's no material risk, I believe, that anything about our assets uh, would impede us withdrawing monetary stimulus as rapidly as we need to. So uh, good, well-informed question, um, but I think we're in good shape there. Sort of a long question or quite a long answer, but we've got a question over here. Yes. Hi. Um, you Hello. talked a lot about inflation and you know, it's under debate whether maybe the Fed should target price stability, maybe, um, you know, more in conjunction. And my area of interest is mark-to-market um, -market accounting, fair value accounting impacts, and um, you have Basel III coming into effect. So the pro-cyclicality of accounting, when you're having trillions of unrealized gains and derivatives, not just traditional loan assets, you know, um, that's what scares me going forward because I'm also optimistic like you and I share in your views, but we talked a lot about mark-to-market -market and pro-cyclicality mm -hmm. on the contagion aspects on the way mm -hmm. down, mm -hmm. and they were visible to happen very fast. But I think mark-to-market -market might have really played into the asset price increases, and you know, especially with 
efficient market theory, you know, mm -hmm. kind of just falling on its heels. I think that, um, you know, we should look more at the pro-cyclicality of fair value counting all the way Excellent. around. And I was wondering if there's... Um, well, let me, can I ask you a question? Um, just to sort of understand where you're coming from. So are you, um, are you now, are you, so are, are you in the camp that says that this, the what we've been through should make us uh, skeptical about market value accounting, or more skeptical than we might have otherwise been? Well, or, I think or do you so. think we should I mean, forge ahead? You know, you look at the maiden lane securities that you bought, you know, mm -hmm. they, I mean, they were, they're doing a lot better than anyone would have ever imagined. So, mm -hmm. you know, they were priced in way low. Um, you know, so it's obviously inefficient at times, um, but you know, when we have the euphoria going, the rational exuberance, I mean, obviously they do, you know, when, when it, the assets go like this, I mean, the, you know, if you look at the trend line, that might be more, mm -hmm. you know, this, so there's some yeah. theories out there of using average asset yeah. values or different yeah. things, but. So this is a big can accounting, um, Accounting in a world where a lot of financial institutions' assets um, can be readily uh, valued using sort of uh, market benchmarks or standard cash flow models, right. but a lot can't, is um, just a, a terribly difficult problem for financial regulators around the world and accounting standard setters. Um, we've been broadly moving towards incorporating more market-based information in the accounting statements of financial firms. We've run into yeah. situations where adding a little, adding some more information rather than a lot more information gets you into trouble. So hedge accounting, for example, for a time was kind of bollocked up by, you know, having to you know, do, use market value on one side but not on the other. Um, I think loan accounting has been a struggle and I think deposits are um, just a huge problem in this environment, you know, especially with core deposits and the sluggishness there. So um, uh, I, I'd like to see continued movement towards using more market information, um, but the key is the discipline around it. Um, you want a process that's, I mean, if you think about it, you know, why have we, why has it been till now that we, why, why has it been so long that we stuck with book value accounting? Why is book value accounting having a, you know, such a role. If you think about it from uh, the point of view of sort of the incentives around corporate governance, it's probably because if there's less discretion, there's uh, less opportunity to falsify. Mm -hmm. And the key to making um, market using more market value data is going to be designing sort of systems and rules and procedures uh, that uh, limit the ability to falsify, to, to use discretion to falsify in a way that takes advantage of the users of those reports. So that's at a very broad, high level. Um, you know, I take it you have some expertise in this, obviously followed it pretty closely. Um, those are my thoughts. I, I'd like to see us move forward, but we, we have a, a, a regulatory and accounting world where there are all sorts of, all sorts of things hinge on accounting treatments and we keep stumbling into roadblocks to getting to a clean, elegant system. So. Yeah, equity's really changed. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, it includes a lot of unrealized gains. There's not a lot of disclosures, but, yeah. you know, when I try to read Goldman Sachs financial statements and they have 835, you know, billion dollars in unrealized gains, 
yeah, on derivatives alone, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't see them, yeah. they're not visible because you net them against right. their liabilities. And, you know, but yeah. if they're overvalued a little bit, that that's a lot of room for manipulation. I, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. Broad brush, I got to believe we can improve things there. And hopefully yeah. you'll contribute to those improvements. Okay, thank you. One more, maybe? Um, yes. Uh, actually, I got so many questions, but I'm more inclined to ask you where you stand in Wisconsin, but I, I won't go there. Madison. Um, I read earlier this Madison. week that the, uh, that the developing countries are meeting this weekend in China to discuss, amongst other things, probably monetary policy and interest rates. Along with that, uh, the more developing countries are, moving, are meeting in D.C. this weekend, I believe, I think it's the G7, mm -hmm. to probably discuss very, very similar things. My question, I, my question is two parts. Number one is the developing countries um, will probably, amongst monetary policy and interest rates, probably also discuss changing the, uh, the, the, the world currency reserve from U.S. dollars to something else. My first question to you about that is, if that were to happen, first of all, do you believe that could happen? That's my first question. And secondly, if that were to happen, what would happen to the U.S. dollar and the United States economy as a result of that happening, of that action? Yeah. Um, so I wasn't invited to either of those meetings. <laughs> Thus, I can be with you today. Um, I don't think a broad movement away from the dollar as a reserve currency is likely uh, at all. Um, but should it happen, I think we could survive just fine. That really helps. I should have asked, I should have asked about Wisconsin. <laughs> right, right. I could have talked about Mad City for a while. Well, you've been wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here.